Well, good morning. Good morning to you all. Congratulations to all you seniors. Life gets easier from here on in. I just want you to know. It gets easier. Oh, really? That's good. Well, congratulations. I'm sure you all have a great uh, lives and careers. In a series called The Empowered Life, uh, I want to show a picture. I always like starting off my messages, just about every message I try to start off with this picture, and it's a picture of the empty tomb. Uh, so if you can put that up there. Is it up there? Got it there? There it is. Okay. Uh, this is a picture, uh, an artist's depiction of the greatest event in the history of the world. It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A few months ago, I talked to this man who is a missionary, and he was involved in a conversation at one point with a Muslim cleric, and they were going back and forth on the pros and cons of their various religions, Christianity and Islam. And the cleric, at one point, he said, you know, I have some advice for you, some advice on what would really help you in your sharing Christianity. He says, if I were you, he said, I would talk about Jesus a lot more. He's the best thing you've got, is what he said. And so that's, that's, I thought that was kind of funny from a, from a Muslim cleric. You know, Jesus Christ is the best thing we have, isn't it? Isn't he? And so we have uh, all kinds of things that are associated with a Christian religion, Christianity, but it's really Jesus Christ that we're all about. And Jesus Christ, he's risen from the dead, and he has sent the Holy Spirit to us, and that's what this series is about. This morning, I want to talk about being empowered for unity. That's the title of this message, and we're going to look at the book of Acts Acts chapter 15, if you could turn there, verse nine, uh, page 923 in the Bible, in your pew Bible, and I want to talk a little bit about unity, harmony. We all like unity. We like to see uh, good marriages. We like to see happy families where they're all smiling together in the pictures. You know, we like to have harmony between friends and harmony in a church. Yet, there are times where there isn't harmony in the church. There's times where the church actually becomes a place of strife. And oftentimes, it's because of theological issues. Have you ever heard this said before? You know, how come Christians don't agree? There's all these churches and all these denominations. You know, why can't you get along, all you Christians? Actually, I think it's a sign in some ways of our uh, strength rather than weakness. Of course, there are some will say that, you know, re religion, it's actually the, the main reason why we have problems in the world today. All the, all the wars are due to religion, you know, some will claim. Of course, that's not totally true either. Really, the reason why there's war today is because of the sinfulness of men. But there is something to be said about this. There can be some special challenges within a church on this matter of unity. Why? Well, it's for this reason, because we're dealing with relationships between men and women, horizontal relationships. We're also dealing with our unity with God. Each of us has a, a picture of who God is and uh, an understanding of what God expects of us. And so this dynamic between me and God, how to sort that out in my relationship with, my, uh, with other people. And it can be a challenge and what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a story in the Bible, in Acts chapter 15, which I think is one of the most significant and critical stories in the whole New Testament and the Bible as a whole. 
and it's the story of the council in Jerusalem. And so I want you again turn there to Acts, 9, uh, Acts 15 and verse, uh, verse 1, page 923. And we're going to look at this uh, particular story. And before I get into it, I do want to set it up this way for you all. You know, what was going on in the book of Acts is that the gospel had come. In the Old Testament, God had set apart the Jewish people and he had laid out all kinds of rules and regulations, one of which was that the, all males were to be circumcised. And they had all these rules that they were to obey. But now there was a new dispensation. There was a new order of things for the church. For those who were Gentile believers, they had come into faith in Christ. And how were they to mix together? There was this blending of the church of the Gentiles with the church of the Jews. And what makes this particular section so striking is, number one, it deals with a passage where there was some dissension, and you see how the Holy Spirit brought them to a place of unity. So it's very instructive for us. In fact, I think the instruction will help us as we look at this on how we even to see harmony happen in our own lives, in other matters, not just in the church. But what is so unique about this passage also is I don't think there has ever been a time in the history of mankind, certainly in the history of the church, where there was a greater challenge to its unity. Because you're dealing with God for centuries, giving all these rules that all his people were to obey. And now, how does that fit into this new era? This is a time of transition, extremely challenging. And here's what I thought is that if God could bring about harmony and unity as he does do here in Acts 15, if he can bring harmony and unity there, he can bring harmony and unity anywhere. And it has encouraged me so much. We're going to look at some principles that I think you'll be able to apply in a very practical way in any relationship that I think will help see harmony and unity happen. So let's just look at this. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Starts off here, these Jewish Christians were saying, all these Gentile Christians, they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, we look at this today and we say, that's silly. We understand that a person is saved totally by his or her faith in Jesus Christ. There's not these other rules uh, it's just faith and faith alone. So uh, yeah, it seems like this could have been dismissed very quickly. But, you know, at the time, if we could put ourselves back in that, go into a time machine and see what was going on then, this was not unreasonable. In fact, I could imagine a Jewish Christian standing up and saying these things. You know, in the Old Testament, God gave the, the covenant to, to uh, Abraham that he was to circumcise his uh, household. And this, this uh, covenant to circumcise uh, continued on with the Jews later on for, for centuries. And in, when he gave that, that command to Abraham, he said, this is an everlasting covenant. It says that in Genesis 17. An everlasting covenant. And I could see them saying, Are you, there it is. It's everlasting. It's supposed to continue on. And beyond that, they would say, you know, Jesus said that, do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. In fact, they would say, Jesus was circumcised. Are you saying that, now here, our Savior, our Lord, he went through circumcision. Everyone else ought to be circumcised too. 
we're to imitate him, right? Or they might have gone on and said this, you know, if you just take out circumcision out of this, this one piece out of living righteously before God, if you take this out, what else are you going to take out? It's a slippery slope. You're going to get into immorality. You'll get into idolatry. Oh, no, no, no. Don't you take out circumcision. I just imagine this would have been a challenge uh, for the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians at that time. And so this is what they were saying. You have to be circumcised to be saved. Verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Stop right there. It's kind of interesting, his wording. No small dissension and debate. I'm, what that means was it was a war probably going on here. A theological going back and forth. In fact, if you'd like to read more about it, just read the book of Galatians. It is the toughest and harshest of all Paul's writings. He says some pretty tough things in that book. And I can imagine this was going on back and forth. No, no, we are not saved by the law. We are saved only by faith in Christ. These are very important issues. So Paul and Barnabas are involved in no small dissension or debate. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were then appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So off they go. They've got to get this thing resolved. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Very interesting what Paul and Barnabas did. They were just talking about what God was doing in people's lives. They didn't get so caught up in some of these theological issues, but they were pointing out how important it was just to see that they were saved by the Holy Spirit. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, again, a lot of going back and forth, a lot of debate about this, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, Jesus just as they will. This was a breaking of the logjam in this dissension. Peter, who was really Jesus' main disciple, he steps up and says, wait a second, I, I'm not sure about this, guys, about this uh, circumcision issue. And that was a turning point in the discussion. Then verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas. You kind of just sense a mood change here. There was a point where everyone's listening. They fell silent. And Barnabas and Paul, they listened to them as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They were hearing story after story of God saving these Gentile believers. After they were finished, after Barnabas and Paul told these stories, 
James replied. James is a very key figure. James was the brother of Jesus, and he was now the, many, many ways, like the, the chairman, the moderator of this council. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, referring to Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, them, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. He's quoting from the book of Amos, this prophecy that God was going to bring the Gentiles into his kingdom. James goes on and says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Question is, why did they just have these things? He has four things he mentions. Um, Let's go through it again in verse 20. They should abstain from things polluted by idols. They should abstain from sexual immorality and from things strangled. They would, uh, instead of normally in the Jewish world, they would kill the animal, and they would drain the blood out of that animal and, so it's, and, uh, and not drink the blood. And so there's these things that look kind of strange to us today, but why were these picked up all these issues? They didn't put circumcision in the group of uh, requirements. And I read one commentator on this who said this, the best explanation of the decree is that it forbids Gentile Christians to participate in four things associated with pagan cults during that time period. Gentiles without synagogue background were coming into the church. Their single greatest instructional need would be to avoid paganism. So this decree advanced the gospel by not hindering the conversion of the Gentiles while also protecting them from falling into idolatrous practices. And these were practices as well that would be of sensitivity to their Jewish brethren. And so this is what was decided on at the time. Uh, there's different commentators on this. I don't think a lot of these things relate to us today. Obviously, the immorality relates. We don't get into idolatry, but there were some things that were unique to the, to the Jewish, the Gentile Christians at that time that I think they were writing about. So here was the decision. So have, at this point, verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Very significant. This was not some decision made in some smoke-filled room but just with leaders. The church was involved with this. With the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, they're kind of distancing themselves from some of these uh, folks that were causing some problems. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, they came to a unity of mind, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and, and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So they wrote this letter. They came to a unity of mind. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Harmony. Joy. This is what we all want. Uh, we just love this. I remember a pastor's conference a number of years ago. I don't remember much about it. I was organizing the conference. And I remember the, the, my highlight of the conference was earlier in that year, I had seen a reconciliation occur between some pastors. And just seeing them sitting at this one table, enjoying fellowship together, was my, the highlight of my conference. There's so much joy when there's harmony and unity. So what I'd like to do the rest of my time here is just to look at five steps that I see from this passage. Five steps will help bring about unity. And as we go through this, just think about how you might apply this in your own personal life. The Holy Spirit brings unity as we take steps of humility. Steps of humility. Humility, humility, humility. That's what I see in this passage, and that's what I've seen over the years, is the key, the key to God really working by his Holy Spirit in bringing about unity. Step number one, the first step of humility, is be proactive to be united. Whenever we're in a situation where there's not harmony or unity, whether it's in a marriage or in a family or between friends, whatever, uh, it is so vital that someone steps forward and says, I am going to take a proactive step to bring about unity. Unity does not happen on its own. It takes initiative. And that's what happened here in verse 2. They, they sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. They just didn't let it sit. Paul could have thought, oh, you know what? You know, I don't care about these guys. I'm just going to go and take my marbles and go home and, and just keep on preaching the gospel. But they went to Jerusalem. They brought about a unity, and, and we're so glad they did because I think it just it kept the church from splitting. It's so, so important what they did there. Uh, I, I like this example from a book called Love and Respect by the Egrichists, and they are a couple who is a, he's a pastor and his wife, and they talk about the importance of breaking the crazy cycle whenever there's disharmony in a marriage. And what they point out in this book is that husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and the wife is called to respect the husband. But what happens is a crazy cycle happens like this. The wife may not respect the husband or disrespect him in some way or another, may say something, and, and the husband in response won't love his wife. And then she, in response, will show less respect for him. And in response, he won't love her as much. And, and on it goes, it gets downward and downward and downward. And they were saying, what has to happen is someone needs to break the crazy cycle. Someone needs to step up and say, as the husband, I'm going to love my wife even though I don't feel like she's respecting me. Or the wife says, I'm going to, I'm going to respect and honor my husband even though I don't feel like he loves me. That is where unity occurs, when people take proactive steps. And that's what they did here. So being proactive is the first step. 
the other four steps all relate to aspects of humility and unity. Uh, the first two deal with our humility before God, and the other two relate to our humility with one another, our loyalty, our commitment to each other. Both are vital. Both are vital. But first of all, our humility before God. So step number two is this, is being have an honest self-evaluation. And this is done in prayer about what is it that really is important to me? What is it that is really driving me in this matter of unity? Maybe I'm being too dogmatic on certain things, or maybe there's other issues than really what is the issue at hand. I have seen this many, many times in working through theological issues. To be honest, oftentimes it's really not theological. It's other things altogether. It's relational things that are going on. There's character issues. That's what's going on. You know, in the garb of theology, it's really character issues. A person's self-esteem may be at stake. Uh, maybe somebody has written a book on a topic or a theological paper on something, and so they've been so joined to this particular issue, they've identified with so much that for someone to question it, it's like their self-esteem is, is being attacked. And, and oftentimes, uh, what I've said to men in this situation, pastors, is you need to get with God and say, why are, is this really affecting you? Is it really scriptural issues, or is it something more personal? Why do you believe this particular view? Is it because uh, the scripture teaches this, or is it because this is something you've always thought, because this has been tradition? Or are you believing something because this is the way the church taught, and I don't want to think with the way the church is taught. I just want to be doing do something different. And we have all kinds of motives that affect us. And what I like so much about this story is, is Peter. Peter broke the logjam here. How did he break it? He broke it by being honest. He said, look, guys, we couldn't obey the law ourselves. And you're trying to get these Gentile people to break it? It ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. And I appreciated Peter being honest. We come to unity when someone steps forward and says, I'm going to be honest about this, maybe about my own motives or about this situation. This was a very, very important point. And I like to say it this way. You want to see a log jam broken in the area of unity, say with your spouse uh, or say with a friend? You want to break the log jam? The way you break the log jam is by taking the log out of your own eye. That's how you do it. Take the log out of your own eye. Don't look at the other person. Do a healthy self-evaluation of your motives, the things that are affecting you, and you'll find these log jams get broken. And I think that's what Peter did here. So having that time in prayer, self-evaluation, and being very contrite and humble before God in prayer. But the second aspect of being humble before God relates to the Scriptures. Being humble before God by studying the Scriptures. We are people of the book. This is our book that we go by. This is the Holy Word of God. We live by the Scriptures. We die by the Scriptures. God has given this to us. Men and women throughout the centuries have died so that we can have the scriptures. They contain the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, that he's died, he's risen again, he's coming back again. And we, we must be people who have convictions. It is so vital that you and I are not just doing things because this is the way the church has said it over the years. We don't do it for that reason. We do it because God's word says so. One thing I know that this church has valued so much, and I know that you... 
I know they've shared this many times on Sunday. It is so vital that you have personal convictions on matters and that your personal convictions are respected. So, so important. There's a quote that I heard years ago. It wasn't from a Christian, but it has a Christian principle embodied in it. And it was from a man named John Boyd. And this man was a military man. And he said this. He said, if your boss asks for loyalty... Give him integrity. If your boss asks for integrity, give him loyalty. What he means by that is that if, you're, if all you're trying to get is compliance to the group, you know, loyalty like this, at that point you say, I need to do what's right. I need to do what God says. It's so vital. I hope that's true for every one of us here. You're always doing what God says, that you have convictions based upon his scripture. So when we talk about coming to a unity of mind, we're not talking about some uniformity or some compliance, some forcing of you to agree in that way. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a situation where everybody is really living out his or her convictions before God based on the scriptures. And at the same time, we're also doing it in community with one another. And so it's so vital that we have integrity and integrity in what we do. And I think if we have, I believe as, as a church, as Christians, as if we're all affirming one another, living out our convictions, and we have integrity on that, I think it builds our loyalty, it builds our love and our devotion to one another. So, so very important. And so what happened here is they were committed to the Scripture. The person I'd like to highlight here was James. James was a man who probably... I'm sure he did this, all his children and everyone in his congregation, they, all, the, all the boys were circumcised. And probably when this was over, they continued to be circumcised. But James also knew there were other scriptures. He quotes Amos here. He talks about these passages about he could understand how God was bringing the Gentiles into the church and into his kingdom. And James was like a, a man that I appreciate so much. He uh, a preacher from 100 years ago named uh, G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan was, a, he was in Britain, and he had this statement, which I, I love so much. He said, truth is not found in the statement, it is written. Truth is found in the statement, it is written, and again it is written. That is, we are looking at the scriptures, and we're understanding the whole counsel of God, not just my own pet verses. And I see that with James. He had studied all of the scriptures, and that's so very, very important. Now, I've gone over three of the steps, being proactive, just being having an honest self-evaluation, studying the scriptures, dealing with my vertical relationship with God. Oftentimes what happens, and this is where we get into trouble, people stop right there. They think, hey, I've got my convictions before God. I studied the scriptures. I know just what God wants. Hold it right there. There's a lot more to go. Because we're talking about coming into a community and understanding. We understand God's will in the context of community as well. And this fourth step is so very important. Incarnational listening. Incarnational listening. What does that mean, incarnational listening? The incarnation is, is, is like Jesus. He became a man for us. Is the incarnation. Incarnational listening is me going to the other person's chair and just living in his world or living in her world for a while to understanding why they think that way. Why does this person have this theological view? What is the basis for this? Not dismissing this person. 
Uh, there's a little phrase I've come across recently I like, contempt before investigation. Contempt before investigation. We cannot have contempt before investigation. Uh, is rather what we want is to have respect and understand there's a reason this person has taken this particular theological position or whatever the position is that we're working through. Because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a general respect that we have for each other. In fact, it's very interesting. There's a word that appears throughout this passage, which is very significant. And the word is brothers. It starts off by saying that these, these uh, Jewish Christians were saying, to the brothers, you must be circumcised to be saved. How does Peter start off his little speech? Brothers. How does James start off his speech? Brothers. How does the letter start off? Brothers. Brothers. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is emphasized here. The person that I appreciate most in this matter of incarnational listening in this passage is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is the leading figure from about chapter 9 on in the book of Acts. And he is mentioned here in Acts 15, but he does not have a prominent role. In fact, it's rather interesting that when they tell the story in verse 12 of them telling the, about the signs and wonders, Notice the the choice of words that Luke uses. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. Did you catch that? They didn't say Paul and Barnabas. It was Barnabas and Paul. In chapter 14, Paul is referred to as the chief speaker. In chapter 15, Paul, I believe, was the chief listener. And that's the difference. I think that we are going to see this world come into a knowledge of Jesus Christ, certainly by proclaiming the gospel. We always do that. But I think at the stage of where the church is, particularly in America today, I think we must lead by listening. We must lead by listening, and particularly incarnational listening. Back to uh, this man I respect so much, G. Campbell Morgan. I read an account of him and how he was doing a theological study one time, and it was on a very significant theological issue. But I was most encouraged by his process. He said in this, uh, as he was telling about uh, the process that he went through, he said he took some time to work through his own biases on this theological issue. He took a lot of time to study it thoroughly. He spent a long time in the scriptures reading verses on all, all aspects of this particular issue. And then he said he, he entertained, he, he listened to every single view on this. And here's what he said. He got to the point where he could, in good conscience, defend every single view in a court of law. That's how he expressed it. And I thought about that afterwards. I thought, I don't really, haven't really listened to a person well until that person would say to me, John... Uh, I think you've listened so well that you could represent my view to others. And I thought that if unless I come to that point where I can really represent from not only mentally but emotionally in every aspect this person, what this person's saying, I really haven't done the incarnational listening. And I think what happened here is that was going on in the book of Acts in Acts 15. In fact, it's interesting in verse 12. It says, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened. They listened. 
And this is where the real breakthrough occurred. So that process of incarnational listening is so, so very important. And then finally is step five. Persevere until there is unity. They came to a unity of mind here uh, on this very significant issue. How do we know they came to a unity of mind? Because it was in writing. That's how you can tell when there's unity. When, the, when everybody who is involved can agree to what is written on this piece of paper. That's, that's how you can tell when there's real unity. Uh, we are able to look at it. And yes, 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 we agree to that. That's why we have statements of faith. That's why through the history of the church we've had creeds. Very, very important. And these represent the, uh, just the, the crucible that we've gone through, the, the, the grueling process of humility and love and working through issues till we come to a unity of mind. Now, this is a tough process. In fact, I, the word there I chose there, persevere, was deliberately chosen. The word persevere means per, that is through, severe. It's through a severe process. You get tested in your love. You get tested in your faith. You get tested in, in unity issues. It's very, very tough to do. But boy, is it worth it. That's what Jesus did for us. Now, some may ask, what happens when there isn't unity? Or what happens when there isn't the same response that I'm hoping, that I'm putting into this process? For example, I may have been proactive in this matter of unity, but the other person is not. Or perhaps they said, okay, we will talk about this, but... Perhaps they haven't gone through that process in prayer that I've gone through working through my motives. Should I, what should I do? I say, well, continue to be humble before God and work through your motives. Well, what if they haven't taken the time that I've taken to study the scriptures and to really to work through all of these issues? Continue to study the scriptures and make sure your life is submitted to God. What if... I have been listening incarnationally to them, and I'm putting myself in their shoes. But I don't sense that they're doing that for me. It's just kind of one way. It's not mutual. I would say to you, continue, continue to listen incarnationally. And what if they don't persevere in unity like I am? You continue to persevere. Why? The reason is is because I believe that God gives wisdom in response to our faith, and as God does work in my life and God builds humility in my life, I think in that context, in many ways, from one sense, it doesn't really depend on others. God will give wisdom, and i got to tell you a story that has had really shaped my life over the years. I heard this probably 30 years ago, and it's it's quite a story, but uh, Watchman Nee was a, a great missionary in China, and Watchman Nee uh, was sharing the gospel in inland China, and, and the particular church that he was working with, they were all very, very young believers. I may have told this story before, and forgive me if you've heard this, but it's such a powerful illustration. And he was sharing the gospel with these believers, and something came up. He needed an answer from God. He wanted to know God's mind on a matter. And, and he was looking in the scriptures, searching the scriptures, trying to find the answer, and it just was not coming to him. And while he was praying, he sensed God saying, just present it to the rest of the church. Present it to the body. 
Humble yourself. Come into this community and listen. And he started talking back to God. He says, why should I do this? These are young believers. Everything they know about the Bible, I've taught them. How can I possibly learn from them? And the sense that he had was, do it anyhow. You present your, your concerns to the body. And so he did. He got all these young believers, sat them around, and he just told them what the issue was. And they looked at him, and they said, we're not sure the answer, but we can pray. And so they began praying. And he said that while he was praying, the Holy Spirit gave him the answer. Now, what was the point of this? Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the king over all. He gives wisdom to us. He gives wisdom through the scripture. And he gives wisdom through his community, through his body. Watchman Nee understood in that situation that there was something mysterious that happens. There's something mystical that happens when we come into his community and we submit to God and the scripture and we submit to one another in community. And I think it's a beautiful illustration of what happens. In this particular matter, it didn't depend upon the theological prowess of all the people that he was giving it to. It didn't depend on the fact that they hadn't studied the scriptures as much as he had. Because God gives wisdom within the body. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And God wants to speak to us as we walk in humility. It is humility, humility, humility by which God gives his wisdom. And so here's what I would say on this matter. Is it's so vital that we take steps of humility in seeing, bringing about unity. We may not see the unity happen to the level that we want. But I do believe that every step that we take will have a better chance of seeing that unity uh, happen. And I have seen God do miraculous things as others, as I've taken steps of these steps of humility. I see that greater harmony and greater unity happens. And I also live life with this wonderful assurance that there is a day when the perfect will come. Uh, there is a day when God, who is the God of reconciliation, will bring about the reconciliation of all things. What a wonderful God we have. And I trust him. I trust him that he will bring about the peace, like it says in the Isaiah, of, of, the, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So just one final word to you in closing. What step of humility would God want you to take? What does God want you to take? Uh, what steps can you take? Is it perhaps it's a matter of incarnational listening, or perhaps it's a matter of persevering in unity or being proactive, whatever it might be. But whatever step that God would have you take, I just want to urge you to be a person who is honoring, honor the scriptures, honor God, honor the person. Uh, be a person who is honest, being honest about your own frailties and blind spots, being honest about what you really believe. Don't stuff it. Share it. Because what you believe is very, very important and being open and honest in whatever conversations you're in. And also, it's very important that you be believing that we have a God who brings about the reconciliation of all things. That's the God we serve. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why he rose again from the dead. And this is the great hope that we have in him. Would you pray with me in closing? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for the example of the council in Jerusalem. Thank you for how you brought about harmony and unity 
in a very, very difficult circumstance. Lord, may we follow in their steps. I pray that you would grant grace to all my brothers and sisters, all of us here, that we would be people who walk in humility because, like you said in your scripture, that, that you give grace to the humble with the humble as wisdom. Teach us to be humble in Jesus' name. Amen.